0: I have had three miscarriages, and I now am lucky enough to have three living children. So I had three miscarriages before having these three living children, and, um,
1: and they were very messy, and one of them ended at 20 weeks. So the only way I have my three living kids is because I had the care that I had during those miscarriages. I needed care. I needed the help, and that was given to
2: me, and now
3: I have three living kids.
2: At least one in 10 pregnancies ends in a miscarriage. That's according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. But those are just the ones doctors know about. Some estimates put that number much higher, one in four, to account for all the times a person didn't even realize they were pregnant. The care for a miscarriage is often identical to an induced abortion. And with the Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, some doctors are raising the alarm about how that could affect routine miscarriage care. After the break, we'll hear from OBGYNs on how abortion bans could impact routine pregnancy care. We'll also hear from an anti abortion rights OBGYN to hear how she sees these laws playing out. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHELP.com slash 1A. We're answering your questions about routine pregnancy care, abortions, and miscarriages. We're also discussing the impact abortion bans could have on that care. Joining us from Austin, Texas, is Dr. Rachel Bowman. She's a board-certified OBGYN and a professor of women's health at the University of Texas Austin Dell Medical School. Dr. Bowman, welcome to 1A.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: And joining us from Washington, D.C. is Dr. Jamila Parrott. She's a board-certified OBGYN and is president and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health. That's an abortion rights organization. Dr. Parrott, glad to have you back. Thank you so much. So, Dr. Bowman, let's get some terms straight before we start. What exactly is a miscarriage?
1: A miscarriage is defined as an early pregnancy loss. Those terms are interchangeable. It essentially means that before 13 weeks of gestational age, there is an empty gestational sac or a fetus without fetal cardiac motion. Uh, We have certain criteria by which we diagnose early pregnancy loss or miscarriage. And what factors
2: might cause a miscarriage?
1: About 50% of miscarriages are due to chromosomal factors. Just the DNA during the division process does not allow a pregnancy to continue. Many of those factors are
2: unknown. And when we talk about miscarriage and how someone might experience one, what are some of the common symptoms? The most common symptoms are cramping and bleeding. Now, as we said, miscarriages happen in at least one in ten pregnancies, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. But some estimates, again, put that number much higher. So, what do we know about how common they actually are? That's correct. We don't
1: know how common they actually are. If a woman is, or a person is, taking pregnancy tests at home and is able to diagnose a pregnancy via a positive urine pregnancy test, that they may know earlier and may recognize a miscarriage. However, miscarriages can occur as early as four to five weeks in which a person would assume it was a late menstrual cycle.
2: Dr. Parrott, we have this basic understanding of, of what a miscarriage is, when it happens, but when does a miscarriage require medical attention?
3: That answer to that is different for every body. Literally. So, you know, for some folks, they may be pregnant, experience a pregnancy loss, and and never know that they were pregnant in the first place. And and your body is really good at taking care of itself the vast majority of the time. So most miscarriages don't require medical intervention at all. But if some of those normal signs of miscarriage that we talked about, cramping, bleeding, for example, uh, if the cramping is a lot worse and not controlled by pain medicine, if Um, the bleeding is really heavy, then those are all signs that the individual uh, may need medical intervention. So there are medical reasons why we may need to intervene, but then there are also emotional and physical reasons why someone may uh, want medical intervention to complete the miscarriage sooner. Miscarriage is the bleeding and the cramping can last for quite some time, and it's various depending on the person. So some people may complete their uh, miscarriage in the matter of an hours. hours, and others may have bleeding on and off for a couple of weeks. And for folks like that, they may want some intervention to help um, finish things up for them.
2: So, so what are some of those medical interventions for miscarriage?
3: Um, We heard a little bit at the outset that the way that we manage miscarriage, the medical interventions, are almost identical to the way that we care for folks that are seeking induced abortions. And so there are two ways that we think about it. Well, three ways in all, right? One is the wait and see. Let your body do what it came to do, and let's see how it works. The second would be um, medication management. So we can give you a series of one or two medications that help the cramping and bleeding pick up uh, and pass the pregnancy earlier, or we can can do uh, what we sometimes call an in-clinic or surgical or suction um, procedure to help evacuate the pregnancy from the uterus sooner.
2: So, and, and that procedure you're referring to is, is commonly called a DNC, a dilation and curatage?
3: Absolutely.
2: Now, we got a couple of questions like this one from Moonchild. They tweeted, I suffered six miscarriages years ago. When I was transferring my paper medical records, it read habitual aborter. I was shocked. I had never had an abortion. I asked, and the doctor said, you didn't. Your body did. How will they address these terms in the future? And Dr. Parrott, first, what are some of these terms we we need to know? I've heard spontaneous abortion, induced abortion, but help us understand the medical terminology.
3: Absolutely. I think that that's where a lot of folks are confused because any pregnancy that ends before 20 weeks of, of pregnancy is termed an abortion. And the question is, was it spontaneous? And those are the abortions we think about um, as miscarriages and pregnancy loss, or was it induced? Uh, and those sometimes people refer to as elective abortions. And that's a term that um, has really Uh, that doesn't describe what's actually happening, and it's a term that we use to schedule surgery in the operating room, but it has really moved into the public discourse around abortion uh, and contributed in a number of ways to stigma. But because we use the term miscarriage for pregnancy loss in most spaces, and abortion is a blanket term for induced abortion in most spaces, people are often confused when they see their medical record and see the word abortion when they've experienced a miscarriage. It's all abortion. Uh, it's just a question of whether it occurred on its own or whether or not it was induced.
2: Well, Dr. Bowman, it, it makes me wonder about just the way we're, we're taught about these terms. I, I've had my own experience with miscarriage, and I remember going to see my OBGYN, and they kept referring to it as a missed abortion. And I was, I was confused in that moment by that term. And I wonder how you're talking about this in the teaching space.
1: We do make a distinction between when it comes to patient education, for instance, uh, I, I am a, a faculty member and so we're talking about the emotional uh, consequences of of miscarriage and the terminology with the learners that I, that I'm teaching While we do refer to uh, any loss prior to 20 weeks as spontaneous abortion we try not to use that terminology with patients given the stigma that surrounds the word abortion. We also refer to it as early pregnancy loss as a more uh, as a as a friendlier term rather than abortion and try to make patients aware of, of of the of the terminology.
2: Now Dr. Bowman, you don't provide induced abortions, but you do care for patients experiencing miscarriages in Texas. How have abortion restrictions in that state already impacted your ability to treat miscarriages?
1: As we've mentioned several times, the the medications that we use in induced abortions are the same that we use to treat miscarriage. They are exactly the same. In a typical setting in which, let's say I've diagnosed an early pregnancy loss and a patient opts for a medical intervention, I will send medications via prescription to a pharmacy in the past i did not have to delineate whether this was whether this was for a termination or for a treatment of an early pregnancy loss recently since since these laws have passed i have been getting calls from pharmacies asking for confirmation that this is for an early pregnancy loss and not for a termination i also have colleagues who have had medications refused To patients, and um, because the pharmacists are not certain
2: about the intentions for its use. The American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the nonprofit organization that provides board certification to OBGYNs across the country, released a statement after Texas passed its restrictive abortion laws last fall. The board said, quote, we support the critical role that all OBGYNs play in the comprehensive care of their patients, including access to safe and legal abortion, end quote. But some OBGYNs are in favor of abortion bans. Dr. Anthera Lane is a board-certified OBGYN in Ohio. She's also a member of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. That's an anti-abortion rights organization. I recently spoke with Dr. Lane, and I started out by asking her about misoprostol and mifepristone, the medications recommended by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists for a miscarriage. They're also used for induced abortions, and both are specifically outlawed under Texas law for induced abortions. I asked her if she used them in her practice.
0: I use misoprostol most commonly for miscarriages, yes.
2: So how concerned are you that these kinds of laws could impact your ability to care for patients suffering miscarriages?
0: I'm actually not concerned at all. I think when, you, when it comes to uh, physicians who are well-trained and have expertise in obstetrics and gynecology, we're very clear on guidelines and uh, what is needed in a case of miscarriage. Um, so the law should not impact that at all.
2: But as we've heard from those doctors in Texas saying they're having difficulty getting the drug from pharmacies in that state, if your state ends up with a law that that bans access to that drug for induced abortions, could that become a problem for you and your patients?
0: Well, I think potentially um, anytime there's a medication shortage that can be a problem for any patient, um, it would depend on the gestational age of the miscarriage as to what options we would have in regards to uh, management of the miscarriage. Um, And um, yeah, so I think just You know, having a little more information in regards to that particular case for the patient will provide us with uh, whether or not there are other options that we can use at that particular time.
2: And if a patient presented to you with heavy bleeding as a a result of an induced abortion, how would you approach treatment in that case?
0: Well, um, our first priority is always to um, put the patient first in terms of uh, ensuring Uh, that her needs are taken care of acutely in that moment. Um, So first would be examining her and assessing the amount of bleeding that she's experiencing. Your your, a lot of bleeding, quote unquote, may not be um, the next person's, quote unquote, a lot of bleeding. So I think it's just uh, first examining the patient, gathering the information. And then of course, if it's um, a situation where the mom's life is in danger and she is experiencing a great deal of bleeding, then then at that point we need to address the bleeding in regards to um, preserving her life.
2: So abortion is still legal in Ohio, but it's one of the states that has passed a law to ban abortions after six weeks. And another bill has been introduced that would criminalize doctors for performing abortions. It's a so-called trigger bill uh, designed to go into effect, and the event row is overturned, and it has no exceptions for rape or incest. Lawmakers behind the bills say doctors could defend themselves if the abortion was done to save the patient's life and if they followed specific documentation guidelines As a doctor, where do you see the line between saving the patient's life and prioritizing continuing the pregnancy?
0: Well, I think as an OBGYN, we are trained to understand that we have two patients. And we have the patient, uh, the mother, uh, as well as the unborn child. So um, I think both of those patients are always... Uh, taken under consideration. They're both always a part of the decision-making as to um, how uh, to best proceed. Um, And then uh, at the, you know, at the end of the day, we do have to um, think about uh, in this moment, uh, is the life of the mother uh, in danger? And there are certain circumstances where we do have to to um, prioritize uh, the life of, of the mother, um, but not without consideration of the unborn char- child, because that is also um, that is also our patient as well. So,
2: Dr. Lane, thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was part of my conversation with Dr. Antherica Lane. She's a board-certified OBGYN in Ohio. Dr. Bowman, you practice in a state where doctors can be sued if they're suspected of performing an abortion after six weeks. Your practice is part of a Catholic medical system, so you don't provide induced abortions at all. But how have you seen the fear of criminalization impact doctors' willingness to treat patients?
1: At this point, I, we are following all of the appropriate guidelines for diagnosing early pregnancy loss. And although there is a gray area in terms of Treatment, for instance, as I mentioned before, the the prescription of misoprostol for treatment of early pregnancy loss, uh, it doesn't affect my practice currently. However, uh, there are there there will be situations, and there have been situations in which doctors are concerned. For instance, if they have a patient that they've diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy, and it is a rare case in which an ectopic pregnancy does have fetal cardiac motion, is that something that we would be prosecuted for treating? Although this is absolutely the indication for surgery and for termination of this pregnancy is very clear. This is an ectopic pregnancy is not a viable pregnancy. So I have had colleagues and I've I've heard of other physicians who have had some issues and some concerns about the vagueness of the Texas law and whether or not they would be subject to legal ramifications for appropriate treatment.
2: We also got this question from a member of our text club. How can a doctor determine whether a miscarriage is a natural event or whether it is the result of a woman trying to abort somehow? Is there any way for the doctor to be sure? If not, how can any doctor in a red state ever help any woman with a miscarriage? Doctors would be scared of liability and arrest if they turned out. If it turned out the woman had induced an abortion, no doctor will dare to treat miscarriages. Doctor Bowman, can doctors tell whether the miscarriage symptoms are because of an induced abortion or a spontaneous miscarriage?
1: If a patient is presenting after the fact, which would typically be a for instance in either situation a an infection an intrauterine infection or uh, with profuse bleeding and in, in which case they would typically present to an emergency room, we don't necessarily know unless there was something other than medication that was used, for instance, an instrument, and perhaps there's additional damage to The uterus or the anatomy that would give us a clue but in many cases we see women and all we know is that they have recently had a pregnancy loss whether intentional or unintentional but they present to us with certain symptoms and we are obligated to treat that
2: patient appropriately regardless of uh, of what caused these symptoms we're discussing how abortion bans impact routine miscarriage care. We'll be back with more in just a moment. And a reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation about pregnancy care post-Roe v. Wade. Uh, Dr. Bowman, we heard from Dr. Lane, the OBGYN in Ohio. Talk about how she views pregnancy as having two patients from the start, the pregnant patient and the fetus. Do you consider the fetus as your patient as well?
1: I would say we we do consider the the fetus a patient, but with the understanding that without the patient themselves, meaning the woman or person with the uterus, there there is no fetal life that can continue. So it would... It would be difficult to say, "I treat them both separately because the priority obviously is with the woman who is or the person who is carrying the fetus.
2: dr. Bowman, is this is this a wholly subjective notion, doctor by doctor, or is there a medical standard?
1: i I think it 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 is open to interpretation. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists makes it pretty clear in their, a recent statement that they believe that the ability to have an elective termination is essential to health care. I would interpret that as prioritizing the patient themselves um, with recognizing that there is fetal health that's, that's also involved.
2: Uh, to me, it seems pretty clear, but uh, I suppose it's open to interpretation. Well, another member of our tax club wrote, In the 80s, my wife and I had a life-threatening ectopic pregnancy while at a Catholic hospital in Baltimore. The hospital refused to abort the pregnancy even though they knew that a fertilized egg outside the uterus could not survive, and my wife was very likely to die. She had to rush to another medical center where they were able to stop the bleeding and save her life. Is this Catholic Majority Supreme Court... If this Catholic-majority Supreme Court strikes down Roe, could women with ectopic pregnancies be refused life-saving medical care? And Dr. Parrott, we got a lot of questions about ectopic pregnancies along these lines. Before we get to the listener's question, just specifically, what is an ectopic pregnancy?
3: An ectopic pregnancy is any pregnancy that's outside of the uterus.
2: And typically, where would that pregnancy be placed?
3: Most commonly, that's going to occur in the tube. So in the fallopian tubes is where we think of it. And that's also the the most dangerous place because the fallopian tube cannot expand and grow to accommodate a pregnancy in the same way the uterus can. And as a result, if it's not caught early, the tube can rupture and the individual can bleed to death.
2: And just to be very clear, from a medical standpoint, there's no way to take that embryo and put it in the uterus if, if it is already implanted outside of the uterus?
3: No, that, that's not a possibility.
2: So what concerns do you have about how abortion bans impact care for ectopic pregnancy?
3: I have, I have deep concerns about the way that abortion bans are going to impact everything, not just management for ectopic pregnancy, not just management for miscarriage, but especially those that are seeking care um, in any number of ways. Uh, The shame and stigma that is directly uh, tied to abortion care impacts the way that people are willing or unwilling uh, to, to disclose if they have attempted to induce their own abortion, if they're having pain, if they're pregnant at all. And so as a result, folks may stay home longer. Right? They may not come to the hospital or to their provider's office to seek care because of that fear. So definitely as providers, we have fear about treating um, folks who are having miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies and waiting too long because we're concerned that we may be at risk, uh, but also really deep concern for the pregnant folks that are seeking care and the fact that they're in a position of trying to decide whether or not it is safe to go see their health care provider.
2: Well, we've been talking about instances when the fetus isn't viable and how that can put the pregnant person's life at risk. But pregnancy isn't exactly safe and easy even when the fetus is viable. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 700 patients die each year as a result of pregnancy or delivery complications. Mortality rates have also been increasing in recent years. Dr. Perry, how does maternal mortality fit into all of this?
3: That's a really important question. I think that we often are in the habit of talking about maternal mortality and pregnancy in one conversation and an abortion in a separate conversation. The reality is that they are deeply connected because these two things often occur in the body of the same individual. And so when we think about restrictions on access to abortion care, we know that communities who are most likely to be impacted by abortion bans and restrictions on care are the same communities that have increased um, inequities in maternal morbidity and mortality. And so we're talking about BIPOC communities, in particular black women and birthing people, young people, undocumented folks, LGBTQ individuals are going to be folks who are cut out from access to abortion care and are more likely to experience morbidity and mortality or death and long-term harm during pregnancy and, and delivery in the postpartum period.
2: Well, we should note in 2020, mortality rates for black patients was nearly double that of the overall population. According to the CDC, there were nearly 24 deaths per 100,000 live births overall, but that rate was 55 deaths for black patients. Dr. Bowman, who are you most concerned for when it comes to caring for miscarriages and pregnancy loss? I am concerned
1: for all women in in the state of Texas, and, and um, but especially we, we do have we're trying to focus very much on the uh, the inequity and the the that is present in the state of Texas and throughout the world uh, regarding BIPOC communities uh, and the the extremely high uh, comparatively rate of maternal mortality. And as Dr. Parrott has already mentioned, this is something that goes hand in hand with the ability to uh, make a a person's ability to make their own choices about continuing a pregnancy and whether or not it is safe
2: and healthy for them to do so. Dr. Bowman, you're working in, in the education space as well. How could abortion bans affect the quality of pregnancy loss and miscarriage training doctors to be might get? Currently... We
1: are not, I, I don't have very many concerns. We have to follow sp- stringent standards put forth by the ACGME, uh, which is the graduate medical education um, department that oversees all residency programs as well as uh, medical school programs. I would hope that we can continue to, to meet those standards. Uh, and so far we have been doing so.
2: And so is abortion training included in in your curriculum?
1: Previously, it was included. Uh, at the moment, it has, been, it has been paused. We are giving residents and students the opportunity to travel to other sites. Uh, previously, we were able to do so.
2: And, and what was the reason for the pause?
1: SB8 and some concern about the involvement of residents and students,
2: uh, the question of the legal ramifications if they were involved. Dr. Parrott, how often is abortion training included in overall OBGYN programs? We don't
3: have good numbers on that. So as Dr. Bowman mentioned, there is a mandate by the accredited institution that it, if a resident or a trainee is interested, that it be made available. But whether or not that occurs in reality is very difficult to assess. Because if you're in a state where abortion is essentially banned, and we're talking about more and more states, then the likelihood of someone who is in their OBGYN residency or family medicine residency or any residency to be able to leave the state, to seek care um, to seek training in abortion care is virtually impossible. And and it isn't just the training program that is impacted by abortion restrictions. We've heard Dr. Bowman speak and another provider uh, earlier, Dr. Lane, talk about working in Catholic institutions. That has a big impact on the care that you receive because the inability to have those medications in, in the hospital, the inability to be able to provide a DNC because you don't have the equipment, is much higher because the institution is leading with ideology and not medicine and science and making decisions about your health and well-being in the way that you need and deserve.
2: Dr. Bowman, are there any other ways you're seeing Texas's abortion laws affect routine care or ways you're concerned it might?
1: I am concerned that women are going to receive substandard care and I'm as Dr. Parent mentioned I'm very concerned that this there will be a delay in care due to fear on the part of the patient. There are for instance a lot of mail order pharmacies that are offering these medications to be shipped to Texas and to other states and my concern is that a patient will take it upon herself to order these medications without first seeking appropriate diagnosis and treatment because we aren't just worried about when with when a posit- woman has a positive pregnancy test. We're not just worried about an unintended pregnancy as an OBGYN, I'm also thinking, is this an ectopic pregnancy? Is this a molar pregnancy? Is, there, is this an early pregnancy loss? I, I'm thinking of other things in which I would want to rule out to keep a patient safe and make sure that patient has access to appropriate care. So I, I am concerned about, obviously, patients taking manner, matters into their own hands, which would result in a delay in diagnosis and substandard care. We'll end on this message from one of you.
2: I had a miscarriage in January. It was awful. Even more awful is what I went through trying to find someone I knew who had the same experience. Thank you for bringing this to light and normalizing talking about it. Well, thank you for sharing your stories. We've been talking to Dr. Rachel Bowman. She's an ob in Texas and a professor of women's health at University of Texas at Austinsdale Medical School. And Dr. Jamila Parrott. She's an ob in Washington, D.C., and she's president and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health. And earlier, we heard from Dr. Anthera Lane, a board-certified OBGYN in Ohio. She's also a member of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, That's an anti-abortion rights organization. Thanks to you all for speaking with us. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.